I, uh, I do want to catch you up before we jump into the book of Ruth. I've been preaching through the book of Joshua. If you remember the book of Joshua, the people are being brought into the land. God's bringing them into the land to keep, to fulfill some promises that he had made a long time ago through Abraham, right? And he's bringing them into the promised land. That's the book of Joshua. Right after the book of Joshua is this book called Judges. That's really, really brutal. It's, I encourage you to read it because it's, um, after we get through Joshua, I think we'll go through Judges. Um, Judges, the people, after they come into the land, they don't uh, do what God said. They actually don't follow him. And it's pretty messy, pretty messy. So that's, and then right after the book of Judges, you have this book that we're going to go through, Ruth. So let me pray, and then we will get started in that. Father, we thank you that we can trust in your faithfulness to keep promises. Even when it seems like things are not happening the way we thought they would. Even when life takes turns for us that are so painful and we're tempted to doubt, we know for a fact because you've kept promises so many already that you'll keep all the rest of your promises. So help us this morning. I echo what my brother said this morning. I ask that you would guide my words, meditations of my heart and my mouth would be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you a question that is a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. Okay, I really do want you to have an honest answer in your heart. Do you ever feel like you've been dealt a bad hand of cards in this life? Maybe your whole life. And I think... Maybe when someone asks you, like we do on Sunday mornings, you know, how have you seen God work this little week? Maybe a few bitter words come to your mind. Um, maybe that hits a raw nerve with you. Maybe the things have been so bad, you actually, in your heart, maybe it's hard for you to bring it out loud because, you know, you're supposed to have all the right answers. But maybe sometimes in your heart, you're like, how can God really be good when I've been dealt this hand. I know I have. I'll be honest. I mean, we're promised joy in suffering. And so many times when I've suffered, it's not joyful. Um, he's promised to come back. And I haven't seen him yet. He's promised to make all things right. To remove the pain. To punish the unjust. And yet it still seems pretty horrible here on earth, right? And if we're honest, I think sometimes those voices in our head come up and start nagging at the back of our brain. I don't know. Maybe we're wrong because of what we see with our experiences and how we interpret them. And this book of Ruth starts off with pretty horrible circumstances, and they just get worse. And then the person who gets dealt this terrible hand 
stays in those circumstances that are hard for an entire decade without any changes. So Ruth chapter 1, there's four chapters in this little book, tells us that it occurs right during the time of the Judges. And like I said, in the book of Judges, the people of Israel disobey God and they like blend in with the pagans. They don't destroy them all. And yet God shows mercy in that book. Like over and over. In fact, 12 times we see a cycle where the people cry out to God. He delivers them through a judge. The judge rules for a little while. He dies or she dies. And then they go back to the same chains that they could have been broken from. And they pick them up and just start carrying them again. And they cry out to God because they get persecuted. Like the people of the land start coming and terrorizing them, destroying their land. It's bad. It's bad. So keep that in your brain as we read. Oh, wait. The end of the book, the book of Judges. The book of, end of the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of how it feels like us today. <laughs> But Israel, there was no king at that point yet, even though a king had been promised. No king, and everybody's doing right what's when they're in the right in their own eyes. So let's read verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means God is my king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from, the Beth, from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Okay, there was a famine. They leave. Husband and wife with their kids, and dad dies. And she was left with two sons. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. Not Israelite wives. Moabite. Enemy. Foreigners. Wives. The name of one was Orpah. And the name of the other wife was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. Stop there. It's pretty rough already. No food. Go to a foreign land. Husband dies. The boys marry some girls, hoping to have some children, to have the family grow. The boys die. (laughs) And this starts off in the town of Bethlehem. And if you'd been reading the book of Judges, there's multiple stories at the end of Judges of the town of Bethlehem and bad, bad stuff happening, all kind of centered around Bethlehem or coming out of Bethlehem. And this starts right here in Bethlehem. And it, a Jewish reader would read this in Hebrew and see some huge irony, because the word Bethlehem is literally house of bread. Beit Lechem means house of bread. And you're going to see the house of bread listed all over this book. So they're reading you read this, and you're like, the house of bread has no bread. 
There's a famine. The house of bread has no bread. And the irony is just huge. And this whole letter is kind of organized around five markers about this house of bread. So I'm going to break it up into that, starting with leaving the house of bread. So think about this man, her husband. His name's Eli Melech. God is my king. How do you think a man whose name is God is my king should respond in the middle of trial when there's no bread, no famine? Like a right response would be for him to cry out to God and to cling to him and believe his promises that he's going to provide. But he doesn't do that. He gets up, packs up his family, and leaves to go to a place where he thinks that he can get provision for him. Israel, remember in Joshua, this is the place of blessing, the place that God's promised protection, and they're leaving the place of promised protection. Right? Kathy's like, no, that's not a good thing to do. That's not a good thing to do. You guys know it too. You know God's going to provide and protect you even when things aren't going just the way you think. But the best place is to be in his will. Right? And he's leaving. They leave. Okay? Um, Verse 1, it says they sojourned in Moab. Verse 2 says they remained there. It keeps getting, the words keep getting more escalated. Verse 4, it says they lived there or dwelt there for 10 years. They just like camp. They didn't just like, okay, we're going to go get some food and come back. They said, we're going to stay there. And what a kind of great blessing and protection do they find where they thought they're going to find blessing and protection? Nothing. He dies. He dies. And then Naomi, married, her sons married these foreign girls, Orpah and Ruth, and that's not looked on favorably. Now, it's not prohibited in the Old Testament, but it's not looked on favorably if you marry foreign wives, especially if they don't convert. That's the, the, the problem, especially. So did Naomi find protection and provision here? Nope. Malon and Kilion die. And what we're left with is a widowed woman. Okay, she has no husband. She's widowed in a foreign land with daughter-in-laws who have no husbands, all stuck in a foreign land. That is about as bad as it can get. I mean, if you're a widowed woman in that society, that's a huge stigma anyway. Um, And then to be poor and homeless and stuck with two foreigners, is about as tough a situation as you can imagine. Now put put yourself in her shoes. Try to imagine how awful that must feel. I mean, life in Bethlehem was pretty horrible. If you read the book of Judges, you're going to see this is really not a good place. And your land has been ravaged by your enemies and wasn't producing. And then you make this trek across difficult terrain to go from that area to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. It's not an easy journey. And then for it to all fall apart, you're stuck. You're stuck. Can you imagine... I mean, how, I don't know if any of us have really been hungry and not sure where you're going to get your next meal. But, and then they have all that piled on. This is awful, awful. And all you can think about is your husband and your sons and being hungry and a God who's left you for dead. Where is he? I'm sure that question's going through your brain. Where is this God? Why did he abandon my people, his people, back in Bethlehem? And why, for heaven's sake, hasn't he brought about this promised, so-called promised line of kings? I can imagine her starting to think 
I must have done something horribly wrong for God to treat me this way. And we start to get into that kind of pattern of thinking. And you wallow in your misery. And that produces something called bitterness. In that bitter hand, the hard things in your life, you can see it. Your friends, your family can see it. It just rubs off. You're not a happy person to be around. Right? You could sum up these first five verses in one word. Emptiness. It's just empty. A house that's supposed, a place supposed to be full of blessing. It's empty. And the God who provides hasn't provided. Now, <laughs> I've painted a pretty bleak picture on purpose because that's the way it starts. Um, and I, we need to know that the Bible is full of real gritty images that helps us connect because God knows we go through hard things. But every single book of the Bible has something that theologians call the history of salvation. And every single one, you're going to see an arc where there is a movement towards rescue. Okay? And that's what we're going to see. I don't want to leave you like, man, this is awful, Paul. Get us out of this story. <laughs> okay? you got to know. Keep looking for it. And in your life, even if it's super hard, you cling to Christ, knowing he does these kinds of things and brings you through. So we're going to see that here. And Naomi right now is presented to us as the most unlikely person to be part of salvation history. But we're going to look and see the return to the house of bread. So we have leaving the house of bread. Now we're going to look and see the return to the house of bread. And in the next 18 verses we're going to read, watch for the word return. You're studying your Bible, trying to figure out, how do I understand the Bible? One easy thing you could do is just look for what words keep being repeated. Maybe even kind of the same words, similar words. And you're going to start to get the point. Okay, so really simple. As we read these next 18 verses, you're going to see the word return 12 times. Why does that matter? Because the book of Judges has a cycle of 12 times of failure. What would the solution be to that failure? It's for them to return back to God. And now we see here 12 times in Ruth, these next verses, that there's the word return, to go back to Bethlehem. And you need to know that God's always calling us to return to him. I also want you to know that not all tragedy that we have in our life is the result of our own direct sin, okay? I think there's a lot of sin on the part of Naomi and some different things in Elimelech, but I don't think it's like they really brought all this on themselves. Sometimes you're, we're in a sin-cursed world. Things, your people sin against us. We sin. It's all messed up. So don't hear me saying that tragedies happen in your life because you sin. We live and deal with the original sin and all of its consequences. So, the, what you need to know is that only in God are you going to find redemption, find rescue, but it may not be rescue out of your circumstances. Okay? It's going to be a rescue from yourself. All right? He may be bringing these hard things into your life to rescue you from yourself. To cause you to cling to him. So what kind of rescue can I guarantee that God gives? It's a rescue from self-righteousness. It's a rescue from self-rule. And a rescue from self-sufficiency. Okay? That's what we're going to see. So let's go back to our story. We're going to read verses 6 through 14. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh, the Lord, grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Who will go with me? Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because she is saying right there, I think God did this to me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Okay? So though Naomi knows where she needs to be, this really hasn't affected her perspective on reality. All right? Um, She's going to head back to the house of bread to Bethlehem. And she stops along the way to tell her daughters-in-law that going back with them is not going to be a good thing for her, for them. Because they're going to stay back in, in Moab and find new husbands, find protection there. She's like, don't, I'm not going to be any good for you. Orpah's like, okay, I'm out of here. Ruth, though, shows us the first example of how God is actually working in this story. When Naomi insists on the girls going back, Ruth expresses God's faithfulness and loving kindness to Naomi by swearing an oath. Now, you may not see this as an oath, but this is oath language you're about to read. Okay, so let's read verses 15 through 18. In Ruth, she said, see, or Naomi, see, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And here she swears an oath. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <laughs> Stop there. Isn't that awesome? She's like, I mean, the poetry right there is amazing anyway. But this is undying devotion, unflinching faithfulness. And no matter what happens, Ruth says, I am with you. Now, I want you to, Joe, uh, Joe could you put, wait, he's not there. I got it. I think it's a word. Maybe. Helps if you turn it on. Okay, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. This is God speaking to his people. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you or hate you. 
I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Do you kind of hear the echoes of what she just said? Ruth probably didn't even know that the Lord said that to his people. So Ruth herself is picking um, up on, let's see here, make it black. The pictures, her herself pictures the faithfulness of God to his people, pictures it right to Orpah or to Ruth, Naomi with her life. Man, oh man, that's amazing. And so Naomi's like, okay, I guess you're coming with me. I'm stuck with this girl. <laughs> so she and Ruth are going to come back to Bethlehem now. And it's been 10 years since people have seen Naomi. And when she left, she had a husband and two boys. But now when she comes back, she, has, she doesn't have her men with her. And she has this foreign girl. And the whole town's in a hubbub. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Stirred, hubbub. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, that word Naomi, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the people's names have a meaning that's like really rich with the story. Naomi's name means pleasant. Pleasantness. Like, you know, like just sweet. I want to be around this person. Her name's pleasantness. All right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Read verses 20 and 21. She, Naomi, said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasantness. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasantness when, the, when Yahweh has testified against me and Adonai has brought calamity upon me? Oof. You know what I mean about those kind of people? You're like, ew, I think, check please, let's go someplace else. <laughs> she is really bitter. Now, we've, we've walked through this story to see, okay, I, that kind of makes sense. I mean, she's had a rough, rough time, hasn't she? I mean, I kind of get that. When, when people are like that, you need to listen, just sit and listen to those stories because there's a lot of pain coming out of that. There's a lot of pain right there. But I do want to tell you that she has. After you listen to those folks, you've got to understand that you and I all have skewed perspectives. Naomi has a skewed perspective here. She says, I left full, but I came back empty. Now, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why do I say that she has a skewed perspective? Because just like we do in the middle of trials, Naomi isn't interpreting her circumstances accurately. She's looking around at this world, but not seeing. It's like she's seen through a certain kind of lenses, and that's all she can see. But what's true about Naomi's story? She says she left full. I don't think so. Why did she leave Bethlehem? Was she full? No, they were starving. There was a famine, right? And yes, yeah, she had a husband and two sons, but I think they left with her sons being sick. Their sons' names, Malon and Kilion, mean weak and sickly. She left not full, but she says, I left full. I don't think so. And then, then she implies when coming back, she implies that she has nothing. Like, almost like Ruth doesn't exist, <laughs> right? She's coming back where there's 
blessing and now has this woman who's demonstrating faithfulness to her like she's never seen in her life. That's what I mean by a skewed perspective. It's almost like she doesn't even think Ruth exists. She says, I'm empty. Do you see how easily she interpreted the tragedy around her incorrectly? Now, it's not to deny that she lost all those things, those people closest to her. But it's like she sees nothing else but that. That's all she can see. And when you're stuck in that, ro- that mode and not able to see, the bad fruit of bitters is going to come out. That's coming from a heart, though, that isn't trusting God. Right? It's hard. It's hard to hear. I want us to know, though, that our story hasn't ended. So let's read verse 22 into chapter 3. So verse 22 of chapter 2. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So what we're going to see now in the house of bread is gleaning in the house of bread. We saw leaving the house of bread, returning to the house of bread, and now we're going to see gleaning in the house of bread. So in chapter 2, Naomi's sitting there sullen, sulking, and right here at the beginning of verse uh, of chapter 3, <clears throat> sorry, chapter 2, Ruth says she takes the initiative to suggest that they go gleaning in the fields. She says, let's see here, make sure I read, I didn't read verse two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi, she said to her, go my daughter. Fine, go, come on, fine, whatever, right? You can just feel it, it's just, and, and here's what the thing is, is Ruth is hoping that they can find some food. Gleaning in the Old Testament is described in Deuteronomy. It's a way that God provided for the poor and homeless. So you have a, a if you can imagine like these, these uh, cornfields right now, I just love it. This is my favorite time of year with the like, way above my head and I'm 6'2". People going through wheat fields though, picking the wheat. Now, if you've ever gone and like picked even like corn and stuff, it's easy to miss stuff, right? If you're really tight penny pincher, you're going to make sure you've got every single stall covered, right? God says to his people in Deuteronomy, don't do that. You just go through normal, first pass, don't try to go back and clean every single thing. Because gleaners are going to come behind you, poor people, and get what they can. And that was God's way of providing for the poor in the community of Israel. That's what Ruth is saying. I want to go do that. Okay? Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. One of the craziest stories of irony in the Bible. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just happened. (laughs) And she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The Hebrew literally there says, by chance. 
And a, a Jewish reader is going to look at this like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Nothing happens by chance. So it's intentionally put there like that to say, God is doing something. God is arranging circumstances. He's working out a plan. So now let's read verse 4 through 17. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? It's funny because the word behold, the way it's structured there, it actually reads in, out loud in Hebrew, Hello! <laughs> it's like, hello! Who is this girl? But it actually isn't saying hello, it just sounds like that when you're saying it in Hebrew. <laughs> verse 5, then Boaz, okay, verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but I want you to keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, not empty. And she had some left over. <laughs> yeah, there's some types there of Jesus, right? <laughs> when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. That's a big bunch. Stop right there. Okay, <laughs> this is amazing. This guy is amazing. Boaz has just reflects godly character. This man is doing something way outside the bounds of normal culture there, okay? There's some obligations God would have given in the law that he did. And that would just simply be glean. That's all he had to do was allow her to glean. But he goes way outside of the bounds. He goes and obeys the law and goes above and beyond by inviting, first of all, inviting the gleaner to come and be with his reapers and have lunch together. But she's a foreign gleaner. She's a female foreign gleaner. And in fact, a foreign enemy, because Moab was not kind to Israel. 
A foreign female, female gleaner was absolutely unheard of to have this, show this kind of kindness. And that's what grace looks like. Boaz is showing grace to her. He blesses her with richly with food, tells her his reapers, let her not just take the glean. You give her a whole stalk. You just pile it on. So he blesses her richly, sends her home with food above and beyond what she could imagine. And now Ruth's about to take home this bounty and show Naomi, Captain Bitterness. <laughs> and now we see that Naomi is going to change what we call an antagonist in the story to a protagonist. She's going to be go from the, the bitter, angry aunt lady <laughs> to the... She's going to be changed. Her heart's going to be changed by God here. So let's look at verse 18 and read through 23. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food what she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I'll come back to that and explain what that's about. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. By the way, I didn't explain that. That, like, You can kind of pick up that going into the fields to do gleaning if you're a woman might not have been a good deal for you. And he was very careful about making sure you protect this woman you lay a hand on her you're going to hear from me that's kind of what Boaz was doing it's verse 23 uh, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law so Naomi's finally recognizing the hand of God here and says that Boaz is one of their redeemers now when you and I hear redeemer where does your head go right away Jesus, right? Good. That's good because that's what this is a picture of. It's pointing us to a future redeemer. But let's, let's take a step back and first understand what is a redeemer because Naomi didn't know who Jesus was, right? This is about, uh, it's probably about 1,500, 1,600 years before Jesus was even born. So she's thinking about what God talks about in the Old Testament about redeemers, what a redeemer is. If you used a King James growing up, you maybe even see the term kinsman redeemer because it's talking about a technical term. A goel is a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer had two functions. His primary function is to protect the family land because land is super important because it represents God's place for his people, right? Very important that we hold on to that. And a Kinsman redeemer would be like brothers, uncles, all in the family who are making sure that the land stays in the family. Donnie and I were just out in Grape Creek yesterday, and he showed me where he grew up, where his brother, where they built a house. And he's like, and I own this land here, and we're trying to sell it, but I think my brother is others going to, because it's kind of, it's hard. You want to kind of keep it in the family in a sense, right? But that's the sense of keeping it together in the family. And God really made it clear in the Old Testament that you actually shouldn't. 
take lead it up, let it go out of your family name. It's not applied to us in the old, new days. It's not a bad deal if it's all your family name. <laughs> but just to get the picture, it's, it's a big deal. And the kinsman redeemer would be there to help the family out of a bankrupt situation. Like they can't hold on to their land because they've got some debts and they have to figure out a way to pay off those debts. So they have to sell the land or something like that. A kinsman redeemer is a family member who's going to come along and say, all right, I'm going to buy the land so that it's still in our family name. That's what a kinsman redeemer's obligation was to do according to God and his revealed will. He's supposed to do that. The second part that a redeemer would do was something called leveret marriage. And this is going to get really weird, okay? Because <laughs> it's just out of our concept of what's normal. <laughs> so I have four brothers, four brothers in my family. My Jonathan, Stephen, and me. If I would die, according to Old Testament practice, Mike is supposed to marry Audrey. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's awkward. That's just really weird, Paul. <laughs> but that's, that's what it was. And it wasn't about just for, I don't know, it was about her protection, her provision, so that she would not be destitute. But it's also very closely linked with that land thing. Because if I had property and I died, what is she going to do to survive? She has to, if I don't have much to offer her when I die, all I have is that land. She's going to have to sell that land, right? So one way that's easiest just for her to do that is for one of the brothers, the closest brother, to marry, to marry her, to keep it all together. And we're like, oh, that's weird. But this is what, this is a different culture. I mean, we're talking... 3,000 years ago, that God laid all these things out. <laughs> all right? So that's what's about to happen as we move into this next section of the passage, what I call matchmaking in the house of bread. Okay? So let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, He's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, <clears throat> this, uh, we got some cosmetology school going on here, okay? Pay attention here. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. That means like put on special oils, things that smell good, make yourself look real pretty. All right? Anoint yourself. So wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet or the place where his feet lies and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth said, and Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so Naomi's telling Ruth, to go down to the threshing floor. And I just need to tell you, I've done some research about threshing floors. And if you just do a simple search in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what happens at the threshing floor, most of the stories are not good things that happen at the threshing floor. It's a little bit like the Las Vegas. Like what happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor is what the guys kind of have that kind of mentality. Not a good time. Naomi recognizes that and assumes that that would be the intentions of Boaz. So she tells her, you get yourself dolled up, and you go down there, and you need to talk to, talk to this guy and, and let things just happen from there. 
That's essentially what's happening. Now, what's awesome is that God has different plans. So let's look at verse 6 through 18 because I, I'm telling you, I just, it occurred to me this week that Naomi is a little bit like Sarah in Abraham and Sarah. Like, because Sarah, when she's waiting for this promised child, it doesn't happen. She's like, all right, I got to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to hook you up with this girl here. And, and that's what Naomi's kind of trying to do. God's got different plans. It's awesome because these two characters, Boaz and Ruth, are just honorable, virtuous people. Six, verse six. So she went down. Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie in that great. <laughs> he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Probably because his feet are cold. Like, what the heck's going on? Right? And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? You know, it's dark, okay? You can't really see. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So if you look at the wings references through the Old Testament, it's always a protection kind of thing. Find under the shadow of his wings multiple times as a phrase of God spreading his wings, right? So that's what she's saying. Would you protect me because you're a redeemer in our family? Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, meaning the first, the kindness she showed to Naomi, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So that would mean he's probably more like a brother of Elimelech, but Boaz is maybe like a cousin or something. Verse 13, remain tonight, and in the morning he will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He wants to protect her integrity. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley, which is a huge bunch, and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz protected her, her, her purity. He blessed her. He protected her integrity, her reputation. It's amazing. It's amazing. And now Naomi sees God's working, working in the situation and says, this man's going to make it right. So now we see the last section, the redemption in the house of bread. We're going to see the redeemers redeem in the house of bread. And here we're going to see Boaz work and actually act on his word. So read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, no, this is probably the brother of Elimelech. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. 
Uh, so it's a public audience so they can transact business here so that they can see everything's on the up and up. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it today and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. Go for it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So I'm next in line. And he said, I'll redeem it. Now notice this. Boaz is a good negotiator, because now he brings in the real harder thing for the man to swallow. Then Boaz said, the day you buy from the field of the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, hang on a second. (laughs) Uh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, we don't know really whether he had a problem with Moabite women or whether he just really thought about the, the implications that he has to now have children with Naomi or with Ruth and provide for them too. Maybe it was a financial hardship. We're not sure. But it kind of feels to me, he's like, wait, 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 I don't know that foreign woman stuff. Okay? Which is, is interesting in itself. All right, now verse 7. Now this was the cut, and this is really strange here. <laughs> now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. <laughs> so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Moaz, Boaz, fulfilled his promises he stayed with what he said the night before he says i'm going to marry this woman i'm going to take the land and honor god with this he unselfishly and sacrificially agrees to not only buy the land but to support and support naomi but also to marry this foreign woman so that her husband malan's legacy would continue now look at verse 13 Actually, let's read 11 through 13. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. That was Jacob's two daughters. Who together built up the house of Israel. Between Rachel and Leah and the, uh, the rest of the family there were Jacob. There were 12 children that formed the 12 tribes of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is a blessing that they are saying, the people of the town. Now, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Man, oh man, this is just amazing because we go from bleakness Hard, hard, hard thing to now a son has been born. It's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing because in Boaz, we clearly see the faithfulness of God to provide and protect for his people. But even more, 
We see here that God provided a child in Bethlehem to redeem Naomi. Right, right? We're here. You're picking up when I'm laying down? <laughs> this points us so clearly to another boy who will be born in Bethlehem to redeem his people. That's what the Old Testament is supposed to do to us. You're supposed to read this, and we're going to look at just a little bit of application to our heart here in just the last couple of minutes. But you need to see this bigger picture <laughs> because this is showing us a need for a redeemer. Even in the midst of the trials, we need a redeemer and God's going to be working. He is going to be working. Now we've almost come to the end of the story. And in the beginning, we summed up the situation with the word emptiness. And now we can see that it's summed up with the word fullness, right? The house of bread is full of bread. A husband has been found. A baby has been born. There's hope even of having more children who could grow and provide for you. The Lord who provides, the God who provides, provided abundantly. It's amazing. And and I think there is a small perspective that we can gather from this book for our lives. One would be that we can lose God's immediate provision when we leave the circle of blessing. Meaning, you step out of God's revealed will, don't count on his provisions. Okay, That's a small thing I think we could get from this book. Um, and also that it's possible to completely misinterpret our, our circumstances. But if all I see is the horrible things that have happened to me, it's easy for me to misinterpret my circumstances and become bitter. I think that's one, pers- one dis- small glimpse of what we can get out of this book. But I think you need to see there's a much bigger thing going on here. <laughs> a much bigger thing. Look at verse 17 through 22. We'll finish the book here. You didn't know you'd go through a whole book of the Bible this morning, did you? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. I'm gonna, I could read that list, but I want you to jump all the way to Matthew chapter 1. All right? I didn't give you page numbers for that, but it's the first book of the New Testament. If, you're, if you grab about the last third of your Bible, you're probably going to jump right into one of the Gospels and be able to find Matthew chapter 1. I hear the pages stop. I'll be all start reading. Okay. So this is, you've probably seen these long lists. Like, what are all these, why does this matter? All these names of these people. Well, it matters. It really does. Especially because when you look at chapter one and look at verse five, it's right in the middle of a list that started with Abraham. Okay. Now it's working its way down. Verse five, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Oh, wait a second. Does that sound familiar? Boaz, Rahab from Joshua? Mm-hmm. Now, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's, okay, the promised Messiah that we felt like wasn't coming was brought through that terrible tragedy. Rahab back in there too, by the way, the prostitute. He brought through 
his promised Messiah. He had made a promise starting in the Garden of Eden about a Messiah who would come. And 4,000 years transpire before Jesus comes, but he does come. And you've got to understand, in order for him to make a promise like this and multiple promises about that Messiah, for him to fulfill that, you can't even do the math of what the likelihood of that could happen without being a God who intervenes and orchestrates every single hard and awful and yet great blessings in your life because he's working a plan. And if he kept that plan and promise of bringing a savior, the promise to return and to bring you with him will be kept. All right. So I just want to give you this three little, little points. If you have paper, you can write this down or put it on your phone. Because this is the most important thing I want you to get out of this book of Ruth. I'm going long because Matt's been going long lately. <laughs> if he could do it. All right. Here's the message of Ruth. Our God is always faithful to keep his promises. Always faithful to keep his promises. In three little points, he has been faithful. He kept those promises that he made in the Garden of Eden. He has been faithful. And Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. That promised king is the only way that you can find happiness and satisfaction in life and eternity. Through Jesus Christ alone, you turn from your sins and put everything on him. Because you get to heaven or you die and that whole proverbial, should I let you in? You say, not me, it's all him. I wasn't good enough and I was too awful. They were both against me. I need Jesus. And he's been faithful to keep that promise, the sin of promised Messiah. Second, he is being faithful right now. He is being faithful to you right now, even if it doesn't feel like it. He's given you, if you're his child, he has given you his spirit who's in your heart, who will convict you and guide you and mediate for you before God who prays those prayers when you don't even know what to say. He transforms you into the image of God. God is being is faithful right now. He's being faithful to make you into the person he wants you to be, even in the most awful of circumstances in your life. He's going to use it. He's being faithful even right now. And finally, he will be faithful. He will be faithful. He has been faithful. He's being faithful and he will be faithful you may say, well, sure enough, those people, I mean, they got to see God work. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Promises were made probably like a thousand years before Naomi. She hadn't seen anything in her lifetime probably come true. And she, she had to wait a long time. But God kept that promise. And so he's made another promise that he's going to return and right all the wrongs. All those wrongs that have not been taken care of even in this life are going to be righted. The right justice will be served. And we can count on him for that return to bring us home with him. We still have to do communion. I'll let you take it and pray and let's go through that.